Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with Doug Sprinthal from the Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. What have you got going? You've never heard me <laughs> do a five minute commercial before is that michael bryan on the line <laughs> i see the phone line ringing no i'll speed it up and get right to the point i got a call from greg davis he's uh boy he's been at walzer longer than i have i think he's probably in his 22nd or third year with the company he's the general manager of our flagship store in bloomington uh, our toyota dealership and he is looking to hire salespeople um and Inexperienced or people with no sales experience are actually preferred because we have a unique selling system, no negotiations, there's no commission, we pay a salary plus bonuses, it's a 40-hour work week, we believe in work-life balance, the benefits are really good, and we have a 13-week training program. We don't want to just turn people over, we're investing in people for the long term. So if you've ever thought about the wonderful world of selling Toyotas, um, Email me directly at dougatwalzer.com, and I'll connect you with Greg and the uh, and the recruiting team, and we'll see if it's a fit for both of us. Sounds like a good deal. That's the Wal- Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company, and they start asking you questions, or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm filling in for Tom today. I'm Dave Schrader. Along with me, Doug Sprinthal from Walzer Automotive Group. Andy Brad Bernard. And Cassie Schrader. Good to have you guys in studio with us. Now listen, uh, Cassie, of course, my wife. We have uh, teen daughters at home, and this new trend is popping up in my news feed, and I'm not happy about it. Oh, no. I don't know why my voice is suddenly taking on this. NPR voice, but <laughs> I don't either. I Uni- you were doing a bit. Unicorn, no, unicorn armpit hair. The best beauty trend oh, of 2019. No. Have you seen this, Doug? I don't want to see Dougie, it, Dave. Dougie I... Pooh, look at that. Ah! <laughs> have you seen this, Andrew? I Gross. Have I have a 15-year-old daughter. She's coming over Sunday. First thing I'm going to do is... No, that isn't no, the first not, thing. No. I'm, not, I'm just, never mind. Check your armpits. It's 2019. We let's need to start, stop shaming women who refuse to succumb to stereotypical gender norms. Women have every right to embrace their body hair. I disagree. <laughs> yeah, so their body hair is gross. <laughs> exactly. Ours is fine. Gloriously, the first month of the new year has been dubbed 
January. An ongoing celebration on social media encouraging women to grow out and show off their body hair. Now women are dynamic, radiant, vibrant beings. So naturally, January got really colorful. On Instagram, some women are dyeing their armpit hair in the rainbow shades and calling them unicorn pits. (laughs) Girls just want to have fun. To give you a bit of context, People reports that one of the originators of the unicorn pit trend is YouTuber Official Rainbow Girl. Oh, yeah. You're a subscriber, aren't you, Doug? I see you in the chat room all the Uh time. Back in 2016, she uploaded a tutorial on how to dye your armpit hair a rainbow color, which racked up 616,000 views. This is why ISIS hates us. Pretty much, yeah. Uh Yes. I'm thinking of joining. Yeah. (laughs) The trend has resurged in 2019, and people everywhere are making the world a little brighter with their unicorn pits. You know, I'm not normally thankful to live in Minnesota in January, but yeah. this year it's looking like a pretty good thing. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I, you know why? Why do you think it is that we're so? I mean, men we have hair everywhere because women love that. Ask them. Do they, honey? Do you like my underarm hair? Yes. Really? I you like want... my underarm hair? Well, no, I like hair on a guy. I'm not gonna. Like... Why are we so offended though when a woman lifts her arm up and gives a little stretch and you see a little? Because it's not feminine. Things. It's not no, feminine. No, they look like German girls and like this <laughs> super race. They're gonna take over the it's world. Kind of on thing. the Ermenge Earl girls, right? <laughs> Sorry. Remember when uh, Madonna came out in the '80s and then that book came out and it showed all the and she was showing underarm. I hair. never watched. You looked liar. at that book. You such a liar. Yeah, I, I never saw it. <laughs> Yikes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I uh, never saw it. Yeah. Uh, it's more convincing if you do it in a low voice. <laughs> I'm looking at these photographs, and I got I to gotta be honest with you. The, the little girl who did the rainbow colors, is they actually look cute compared to the rest of these little just like naps of hair that are, 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 are on this you know, uh, this article. Is podcast. Yeah, it is, but it, it, right? I'm just you know, kind of putting it out there for people. You can check it oh, on MSN.com. looks like bruising. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. In a lot of the cases, they look like... Uh, they look like, like your police got, photos. Or, or you were trying to clear the cone of your cotton candy and just stuck it under your arm and gave it a quick pull. Well, I saw the video last night, because this has started trending yesterday. Yeah. Um, this girl was laying, and she had, her, she had armpit hair, and she's like... You know, it's long and stroking. I do that all the time. Oh. (laughs) Usually just when I'm driving, I'll kind of reach in. (laughs) Give a little rub. Really? (laughs) Heading down Highway 100. Louis C.K. style over there? No, my armpit Uh, hair. Oh, oh, I'm just clarifying. Yeah, I'm the pervert. (laughs) You brought the topic up. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) Oof, good grief. Blockbuster, do we have our guest? I don't want to. No. He said they hung up. John, okay, he is with us now. Okay, good. I don't know where he is. Oh, okay. I thought you said, oh, there he is. Okay. Nope. We'll be talking with John Farrick in a few moments, perhaps. A blockbuster storm heads east. It could drop. 40 inches of snow. Mm. And then an Arctic blast will freeze 200 million. Uh, there was a weatherman that had the weather map, and it, uh-huh. but instead of the snow totals, he had how many bottles of wine you'll need to get through the storm. <laughs> I <laughs> like that. On the coast, it was like seven, and up in Lancaster, it was 40. So it sounds like it's going to be You know, Minnesota's the- slowly becoming kind of the Pacific Northwest yeah, of uh, weather. You know, you look outside, we've got nothing, a dusting of snow today. I know. Where's all the snow? And yeah. the East Coast just, Good. that's why my friends oh. out East that are always like, oh, I'm not coming to Minnesota. It's freezing and you guys get tons of snow. I'm like, have you been watching the news the last decade? I don't ever remember opening my front door and having snow up to my, my eaves. Yeah. They've had that on the East Coast like every year for the last seven years. Yep, especially around Buffalo because you get that lake effect snow. Well, Buffalo always gets like 250 inches of snow a year. After hammering California with the rain and snow, a blockbuster winter storm taking aim on the east where as much as 40 inches of snow could fall. After the storm rolls through, bitterly cold air straight from the Arctic will roar in, bringing below freezing temperatures to 200 million Americans. Freezing rain, heavy snow, and heavy rain are expected in association with the storm system through the central and eastern U.S. over the next few days, said the National Weather Service. On Friday, the heaviest snow Friday, uh, on Friday, the heaviest snow Friday, for double clarification, will hit South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota. Oh, really? Kansas, Missouri, and Iowa. That's what AccuWeather said. Well... One, it's going to snow here, actually? Minnesota is the ninth state for snowfall. In fact, 
New York gets more than twice our snow. Oh, so, I would say well, it doesn't snow that much here, actually. Yeah, it no. just never goes away. Usually, Pretty much, typically. yeah, that's the thing. Um, but we annually get 54 inches, yeah, I was and I think we're cities. about 50 inches short, so we're going <laughs> to... <laughs> oh, you guys, you guys so boys. We're going to make it up this week. Uh, so Friday, the heaviest snow is going to hit the Dakotas, Nebraska, Minnesota, Kansas, Missouri, and Iowa. Then the storm will wind you up mean and tomorrow. roar into the northeast mm. and New England. AccuWeather said 40 inches is possible in parts of northern New England, while close to 30 inches of snow may fall in parts of central and northern New York state and the northern tier of Pennsylvania. Snowfall rates could reach 2 to 3 inches per hour. So now should we be bringing more wine to your house tomorrow? Sure. Because if we've got to get through the snowstorm. <laughs> the storm will be a blockbuster in terms of impact and dangerous conditions, said AccuWeather meteorologist Alex Sinsnowski. Sosnowski. I don't know how to say his name. Snowfall of 12 to 24 Clearly. inches is likely to be more common in the heaviest band from the storm, AccuWeather forecast. But blowing and drifting at the height and conclusion of the storm may cause the snow depth to, be, uh, to vary by several feet. Plows are not likely... To be able to keep up, so Snowski warns, as the storm strengthens, winds will cause major blowing and drifting of snow. So this means we're either in for a horrific time or we're going to get another light dusting because mm-hmm. they yeah, either just know what they're the talking about or don't have any clue. 10-day forecast doesn't have any snow until Monday. <laughs> well, then. You're not talking to the AccuWeather people, though. Yeah, just weather.com. Yeah, it's they probably a fake news weather site. yeah. That just goes to prove it, right? AccuWeather, brand new news right here telling us tomorrow we're expecting all the snow through through those states, and Minnesota included, and weather.com. Nope. You guys maybe get a little dusting on Monday. Well, 60% chance on Monday, it says, yeah. of showers. So that's nothing. Yeah. Yep. And then nothing. possible some snow left over on Tuesday. That's my dad goes, oh, are you guys expecting? I go, I don't know. He goes, well, you live there. I said, right. And if you listen to one newscast, they'll tell you we're going to get 14 inches. The other newscast will tell you we're going to get a dusting. And the third newscast will tell you it's going to be 54 and warm. Yeah. And they all could be right, depending on what side (laughs) of the metro you are. Yeah, I have uh, no interest in following the weather on on any of these deals because they're never right. Until it's in the middle of it. Heavy snowstorm alert. Right. While we're in the middle of the alert. Oh, looks like it's snowing. Okay. What did, what did you want to watch? As a matter of fact, the uh, last year, I think our kids missed two or three days of school predicated mm. on nothing more than what the National Weather Service may be coming. <laughs> and uh, we got nothing. They're like, Friday school's off that. for kids because we're expecting 16 to 24 inches of snow mm-hmm. and nothing. <laughs> nothing. And then, then, like, the week later, we get blasted with snow overnight and get 8 to 12 inches, and they're like, make sure kids are ready for school tomorrow. I'm like, are you kidding? Now they're going to be going out? I don't know. Maybe I'm just too bitter about it. I'll knock your brains out. That's what the rowdy tourist family currently carving a trail of destruction through New Zealand claimed. As the world plunges into chaos, Doug. In New Zealand? You could be forgiven for thinking a New Zealand, a Bolt hole for the super wealthy operating under the stewardship of the nicest lady in politics is simply trucking along serenely. Sure, Brazil's fascist president has just relaxed gun laws despite the country being the uh, leading the world in homicides. And the UK is drifting disastrously toward Brexit while Theresa May's leadership hangs in the balance. And the article says, I just don't care to mention Trump. So that's helpful. But we do have problems of our own in this little corner of the South Pacific. Namely, we are being terrorized by a large, rowdy family of holiday makers. For weeks, New Zealand problems, I guess, huh? For yeah. weeks, a terrible family of unruly tourists has wrought a trail of destruction from Auckland all the way to Hamilton. A large man in red shorts and a white tank top, a woman in a unicorn onesie, and a small, angry boy are unwilling public faces of this terrible family, who number about 12, according to multiple witnesses. It all kicked off Monday when the Kiwi social media was flooded with video footage from the Auckland beach. The video showed a Kiwi woman confronting a tourist about rubbish they'd left strewn about the beach, including beer bottles and dirty baby wipes. Littering is a finable offense in New Zealand, as well as heavily uh, culturally frowned upon. The woman shooting the video, Aucklander Krista Kernow, said she was intimidated by several adults in the group before being threatened by a shirtless boy 
of about nine years old wearing an oversized straw hat in the video. The boy, having detected his family's honor as being called into question, marched purposefully into the fracas and shouts out, I'll knock your brains out. Mm. Yikes. Soon, other New Zealanders... I've heard of slow news days before, but this might have to take the cake. Is it? Or you, I'm just... We're putting into context how slow it must be in New Zealand, right? <laughs> Nothing else going on, but we've got horrible tourists that have visited this week. Soon, other New Zealanders came forward with their own stories of unpleasant encounters with the uh, unrepentant tourists. Turns out this bad family has been wreaking havoc on our quiet country for a month now. I'm just afraid that we're going to get to the point where they're going to say which country and state they're from do you have any guesses on this well florida would be come to mind that would be yeah florida maybe uh what other states do you think might, might... no are, are, are they uh americans are the yanks does it say so far it hasn't said anything in here they are uh, from the great state of england it says while the group's heritage may be up for debate what is clear is that the absence of any actual news thanks to summer holiday slump new zealand has become quite obsessed with the horrible family's misdeeds so you're exactly right there's nothing going on in new zealand no. so they're just following this family in their wrath of or their uh, yeah wrath of terror as they spread across the country, unbelievable. A 27-year-old Vancouver Washington, or a 27-year-old man from Vancouver, Washington, is finding internet fame this week with a video of himself jumping from a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. He also is now banned for life from the line and could face legal consequences. Wait, I thought he died. This was stupid and reckless behavior, and he and his companions have been banned from ever sailing with us again, Royal Caribbean said in a statement sent to USA Today. We're exploring legal action. The jumper, Nick Native, uh, posted video Friday on Instagram that shows him leaping from the 11th deck of Royal Caribbean's Symphony of the Seas, the world's largest cruise ship. The incident took place last week when the vessel was docked in Nassau, Bahamas. Oh, he did it when it was docked? Yeah. That is not Big smart. fat girl. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Wow. The video has since gone viral, racking up thousands of views. The video shows a native jumping, uh, climbing onto the railing of a cabin balcony as his friends laugh in the background, then leaping into the water more than 100 feet below. Native told the Instagram followers he was drunk at the time. No. That's true, Doug. On a cruise ship? It's true. I didn't think they had alcohol on those boats. I was still drunk from the previous night, he wrote in the comment section of the video post in response to a question from a reader. When I woke up, I just decided to jump. You know, I've had hangovers before, but I can't imagine a 110-foot no. jump off the side of a boat into the ocean is going to feel good. Uh, but I bet it sobers you up pretty damn quick. Oof. That cold water yeah. and the fall. The what did I do, do right? Yeah. Oh, my God. And the fact that he had, he had like a 90% chance of landing directly on a rock because they were at shore. He says he never felt more alive, but he also <laughs> said he felt uncomfortable after hitting the water. I could barely walk for three days. LOL, he wrote. Native said he was plucked out of the water by a small boat that happened to be in the area and brought to shore. At that point, security officials from the ship told him he was being kicked off the ship. Not just him. But his stupid friends, too. Native noted the local police were called but didn't press charges. When the cops showed up, they were super chill and actually laughed at the video he wrote on Instagram. Native and his companions had to find their own way home from the Bahamas. Oh, people. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back with more here on the Tom Bernard Show. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the Guaranteed Offer Program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. If you're tired of feeling frustrated because your clothes don't fit like they used to, then Nutramost is for you. 
Thanks to the Sheehy brothers and staff at Nutrimost in Plymouth, I am down 92.5 pounds. The Nutrimost program is amazing. I lost over 40 pounds during each of my first two 40-day rounds. You can have great success just like me because Nutrimost is customized for each individual person, and the staff at Nutrimost will be there for you every step of the way. Start your weight loss journey today and let Nutrimost help change your life. Give yourself this wonderful gift or give this program as a present. Nutrimost guarantees that you lose 20 pounds or more. Nutrimost helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Putting us in the Caribbean mindset. It's yeah. jamming, not jumping. We be jumping. All right, welcome back to the show. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Joining me now, promoting the book, The Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, is John Farrick. He is a native of Joliet, Illinois, and returned to his roots in 2007, and he became the editor and reporter for the Joliet Patch. He's uh, previously spent five years with the Wisconsin investigative team for USA Today Network and nine years in Nebraska at the Omaha World Herald newspaper is here to talk to us about the Stephen Avery case, which has been featured in Making a Murderer documentary seasons one and two. And there have been a lot of changes going on in this case. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. For anybody that's been living in a cave and not familiar with this case, uh, Stephen Avery was originally charged for um, uh, raping a woman, I believe it was put away for a number of years, eventually was exonerated when it was proven that he was not guilty. And as he was preparing a huge wrongful uh, conviction uh, case against the the state and getting ready for a multi-million dollar payout, suddenly Teresa Hollenbeck vanishes and uh, is murdered. And the last place she was seen was on the Avery property doing photographs for what, what the Auto Trader magazine. And suddenly he's embroiled in a new case. And everybody at first automatically assumes the worst of Avery yet again. But could the same conspiracy strike the same man twice in a lifetime? I mean, that seems really out there, John. And I know a lot of people are having trouble swallowing that pill, but reexamining the case through this second season and all of the things that are coming to light. How is it that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are still in jail? Uh, part of part of it, unfortunately, just deals with uh, Wisconsin's uh, criminal justice system. Uh, in a lot of states, I've learned, and again, I picked this up by interviewing uh, Stephen's uh, pretty famous attorney, Kathleen Zellner. She has a real good relationship, usually, with prosecutors and police in other jurisdictions. In fact, I think she was just down in Houston on that uh, on a big case uh, meeting with uh, with prosecutors. Uh, but uh, but in the state of Wisconsin. Um, those individuals, the prosecution, the police, and even the judges have been very, very resistant and reluctant to uh, to work with Zellner to even really give her the time of day. So uh, it's it's just one of those unique situations where the state of Wisconsin has really dug in its heels, Dave, as far as they want the Avery case, they want they want Stephen Avery, they want Brendan Dassey to be um, on the books forever as being convicted you know of the murder and that they really don't want to re-examine so far anyway people that have handled the case really don't want to re-examine the case and or look at whether either one of them got a fair trial the first time around or whether there was monkey business with some of the um some of the evidence in the case do you think that we're going to end up seeing john a similar situation mm-hmm. like what happened with the case of the west memphis three you've got three boys that are um, accused of murdering three young boys in ritualistic ways they're put in jail uh one appeal after another is is overthrown and, and turned away they eventually become the um focus of three pretty massive uh documentaries for hbo and they end up getting called back in uh, giving a deal called the Alford plea, where basically they're agreeing we're you, they're going to be let out. We're guilty. We can't sue. We can't do anything. And basically, kind of taking this this plea of no contest once they get out and leaving it at that. Do you think we're going to end up seeing that eventually in the case of Avery and Dassey? That the only way these guys are going to see the light of day is if they sign an Alford plea, so that they get no restitution for these wrongful convictions. 
you know, for a long time I thought that would never happen, but I, yeah, you have to start to wonder if how long could the cases prolong for them as far as how many more years would they be willing to remain incarcerated while their lawyers are working diligently to try to, you know, to try to free them or get them a new trial. And especially in Brendan Dassey's case, you know, where he's pretty much uh, um, run out of appeals. Uh, I mean, his case went before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and, and they didn't hear it. So uh, I, would, I would say that it's a possibility. I still don't think it's a strong possibility yet, Dave, just because both of them are adamant they want the world to know that they're 100% innocent. And even deciding off on a document, you know, such as an Alford plea, would um, give the public the impression that maybe they were guilty, even, even though they maintained steadfastly that they uh, were 100% innocent. So I would say there's probably a little bit more of an opportunity, possibility for that with Brendan Dassey than, than Steve Avery, just because Zellner... Kathleen Zellner doesn't seem like the type of attorney that would work out a deal like that at this point in time. Do you think that if they did cut an Alfred plea and they were to be released, would that then put Stephen Avery back in for the running for the money for the original case, since that was a wrongful conviction? He was exonerated from that case, and it was all just pending on, on everything processing and the check being cut for him and his family. Do you think that he would still become eligible for that money? No, no. The reason why I would say no is because um, he cut a deal while he was in jail. That was the whole catch-22 with, with that whole lawsuit falling apart on him while he was in court, or yeah, being charged with the murder, is that he needed money to, uh, to hire um, private defense lawyers to, uh, to put up a good defense to the murder case. So he settled, he re- while he was in jail, he settled that $36 million lawsuit and got $400,000. Out of, I mean, out of it. So wow. I mean, he settled just to get some money. Yeah. So, so, so that case, unfortunately, is completely over with. And, and you know, and who who wins out on? That? I mean, that case, the insurance company obviously won big because uh, you know, paying four hundred thousand versus thirty six million. You know, somebody saved a lot of money. Yes. But then also the sheriff of uh, of he was also on the hook uh, financially. For that um, for that lawsuit and uh, and and he he skated by without having to pay a nickel and he didn't even have to give the deposition because uh, he was scheduled to have his lawsuit deposition the week that Steve Avery got charged picked up and arrested for the murder so um, he really caught a few lucky breaks but uh, then again he was the guy that uh, put Avery in jail and railroaded him the first time around so he knows how to do this stuff so here here comes in the clause right I mean if if everybody's saying all right well you know, obviously he's guilty this time. Why would they try to keep him, you know, why, why would they fake this and, and put him in jail for a crime he didn't commit? And now why wouldn't they just release him if there's all this information and pushback showing that he's most likely not the guilty party? Well, I've got to guess, John, that if, if Avery gets out and is yeah. exonerated in this case, not only does he have another wrongful conviction case worth $34 million, but he can go back and sue for the first case, not not that case specifically, but saying that because of the situation and being wrongfully convicted, he gave up right. $31 million, so he wants restitution on that as well. He's now looking at you know, 60 to $70 million for a case, which suddenly mm-hmm. becomes a, a very big reason for... Um, them to keep him in jail and not let him out and not let any of this this get by and do you think they thought oh this family's just white trash they're garbage nobody's going to care you know this guy we can bury and it'll end our problems with this court case do you think that's really what it was when they if they truly did plant this evidence to make avery appear guilty i i think generally that's true dave uh, because uh I mean, they've known each other for generations around uh, Mantua County. And uh, I, I think it was probably a case where they thought in their minds that there was probably a good chance, you know, a 50-50 chance or a 60-40% chance that Avery may have did the crime because of the fact that she turned up missing on Avery Road and, and the fact that she had had an appointment to go see him that day, even though, you know, that was common and she'd been out there, I think, a dozen times or so over the past year or two um, without any issues, never had any fears or qualms or reservations about meeting with Steve Avery, you know, for, for the vehicle um, 
photos. But uh, but yeah, I think it, I think they just probably hedged their bets and, and thought, or or convinced themselves that that Avery was just such a bad person in their mind, Dave, that uh, that they thought uh, he probably did the crime, and uh, you know, and whatever it takes, if if it takes planting evidence or forging evidence or fabricating evidence. Um, you know, those would be things that may have to happen down the road because the ends justify the means, which is, you know, putting somebody away for the murder. Right, and then well, second of all, let's you know, ex- getting, getting themselves out of that lawsuit. Let's examine that aspect then, John, because let's say that, that um, Stephen Avery was the murderer and got away with it. Does the ends justify the means by planting this, should we get this guy, you know, put away for the crime that he committed if he got away clean? Well, I would say, I mean, it's never appropriate to be to be planting evidence, and, and good cops, uh, I mean, would shun that practice. I mean, it's illegal, and you should go to jail yourself if you're a police officer that's fabricating evidence and making evidence up and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, I would say... Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why there's a lot of unsolved murders around the United States and elsewhere in the world, and, and, and oftentimes it's because, you know, police realize that they don't have sufficient grounds to make for probable cause to either make the arrest or go forward, you know, in the court of law and stuff like that. And they don't plant evidence or, you know, fake evidence or make evidence up, uh, you know, even if, they're, even if they have strong suspicions that a person did commit the crime and stuff like well, that. Well, and, so and putting... Just, our justice system... Putting ourselves, though, in the the devil's advocate position, right? I mean, here you've got a guy who's going to automatically get the sympathy of the world about this case. That's got to be extremely frustrating for law enforcement to realize, man, we we know this is Avery. We've got him. We we just have nothing. You know, it's all circumstantial garbage evidence we've got. And, of course, I'm not condoning at all putting it on there, but that's got to be a stressful environment for for a— law enforcement agency anyway, but to know that they're already on the heels of this other case and the sympathy level that's out there and that you have Stephen Avery is now the face of the Innocence Project, my God, if he mm-hmm. did do this and, and was going to get away with it, there that has got to be one of the most frustrating moments in law enforcement history. What do you do? What what do you do at that time? Yeah, it's, uh, as, as far as if he did commit the crime and stuff right. like that, you're right. I mean, other than... Uh, um, maintain you know, your points as far as why you believe that you were right all along and stuff like that. But again, the problem you have with so much of the evidence in this case is that it, it all seems to kind of show up mysteriously and suspiciously all at the most opportune times of the case where it just doesn't really make a lot of sense that that all of these things happened you know, one after another, such as you know, the spirit key being found in Avery's bedroom, you know, on the sixth or seventh search of the little bedroom. And, and, uh, um, and then the, the, uh, the bullet that shows up in the garage on the floor four months after they had already did two or three days straight, you know, of checking devour, you know, going through that garage everywhere, looking for any type of, you know, um, blood, you know, gunshot residue, right. um, any trace evidence, anything that could point to, uh, Steve Avery is being involved in a crime, and then lo and behold, they they go in after the fact right after they take Brendan Daffy into custody three or four months later, and then now they find a bullet, you know, on the floor, and then they realize, well, um, let's go back and check the Teresa Halbach's vehicle, her RAV4, which had already been gone through extensively by the state crime lab. Now it's back in the local police's custody in a garage that they're holding it onto, where they have access to it all the time. And then this, and then now all of a sudden, you know, the infamous uh, the sweat DNA, you know, appears again six months into the case um, after the car had already been checked before. So you just have a one event like that after another. And again, these are police departments that don't work homicide cases all the time. So there's the skill level wouldn't be there compared to you know a, a major metropolitan police department that handles dozens, if not hundreds, of murder cases. You know. In, in a in, in a you know year or five year period and stuff like that. So the fact that these inexperienced police officers that really don't even work homicide cases, you know, um, all of a sudden find this, right. this evidence that just drops in their lap, 
months later. I mean, it's you a, think the it's state really of smells bad. You would think the state of Wisconsin would have been smarter after the first conviction, um, misfiring, and the exoneration to keep it out of the hands of local law enforcement to only have state law enforcement or maybe even federal take over that case and see it through to the end might have been the best way to handle this so that that way there wouldn't obviously we've, we've already proven the ineptitude of the local manitowoc police department in the previous case so and and the corruption and the things that have gone on it's it's such a strange uh, story the wrecking crew is the new book demolishing the case against stephen avery where john ferrick lays out in exacting detail this post-conviction strategy of Kathleen Zellner, the high-profile, very high-octane lawyer to free Avery. To write this book, Zellner, again, perhaps America's most successful wrongful conviction attorney, has given John Farrick unique access to the exhaustive pro bono efforts that she and her small suburban Chicago law firm have dedicated for a man she believes to be a victim of an unscrupulous justice system in Manitowoc County. John, we wish you a lot of luck with the book. Please keep us in mind and let us know when when more things develop. Will you do that? Absolutely, Dave. Thanks very much for having me on. Have a great day. Thank you. Stay tuned. We've got more coming right after this. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers, come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom will be back with you tomorrow. Sitting in, I'm Dave Schrader. Joining us now, promoting the book, When Death Becomes Life, Notes of a Trans- or from a Transplant Surgeon. Joshua, is it Mesrich? Mesrit, that's right. Oh, great. Well, Joshua, thank you very much for joining us and uh, sharing some insights on this. What a, a fascinating concept, right? When when death becomes life. Uh, the, the whole concept of, of transplantation and, and what what goes into this, I mean, that is, that's remarkable. I, my cousin had a heart transplant. I've had a friend that had a kidney transplant. And, and just watching them get a new lease on life with you know, from uh, these these tragic sources in most cases, but it, it's a great way for life that shows that it can continue on. Um, what did you want to bring out in this book? What what new information or or, or insights did you want to bring to the the reader to understand about what this what this really does? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many levels that transplant is this incredible field. It's it's really different than other areas of medicine, kind of like you alluded to. Other parts of medicine, we're always trying to fight off death or or maybe at least let people have a good death. But transplant, in a lot of ways, starts with death. Um, we take this gift from those who have just died and are able to really bring new life. And I think the stories are amazing. I really wanted to tell some stories about donors and the heroes that they are, both living and deceased. But also, it's, it's a book about innovation because uh, transplant was like science fiction, in the 40s into 50s, and then was a pretty crazy field in the 50s to the 60s. And by the 1980s, it became this very reliable field, um, which is amazing. 
And there's new leaps and bounds yeah, that I mean, are taking place, thinking, too. They've been making these uh, changes. And, and do you like what they're doing with taking um, human DNA and and kind of uh, uh, combining it with pigs so that the, the pig hearts may be more adaptable for these cases of, of transplantation as well? Or do you think we're going to be better suited sticking with human donors? So I'm kind of a believer. I, I uh, some years back, was involved in some research on this, but... I do think with newer gene editing technologies, um, the ability to use pig organs in humans is is going to be a reality. And I think we're probably going to be seeing trials in the next one to five years. Now, it'll take some time to, to, to make it really work. But um, things have changed, and there's already experiments um, where pigs are keeping primates alive for more than a year with transplanted organs. So I do think it'll be a reality. When, when this happens right now in in America, where do these transplanted organs come from? Are they strictly from American donors? Uh, do they do we work out with other countries to get uh, get uh, organs from them as well? How does that all can you know happen? Right. Yeah. I mean, we have an organization called UNOS, uh, United Network of Organ Sharing, uh, that that basically manages. Uh, the donors uh, through kind of smaller subsets, but they do all come from the United States. Um, in the rare case that a foreign national dies in the United States, they can potentially be donors as well, but they do all come from the U.S. And of course, a lot of our organs, particularly kidneys, come from living donors, so that's a whole different story. But right. um, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, so in general, th- organs are, are shared across the country in, in different ways, depending on the organ that you're thinking of. At, at what point do we harvest the organs? I mean, obviously somebody has to be willing participant to allow these organs to be used after death. But when, if a relatively healthy person was killed in an accident and the body uh, has not shut down yet and you're able to, uh, and this person was a donor or the fil- family's willing to write it off, how much of that person can be used in, in uh, donor transplantation? Right, so... Typically, our deceased donors um, um, can be of two kinds. One is those who become brain dead. So they get in an accident, a stroke, a heart attack, whatever it may be, but they no longer have blood flow to their brain, but their heart is still beating. Uh, They are declared brain dead, which is consistent with legally dead in this country. And at that point, their organs can be allocated, um, and, and we can procure them. And typically, we can take, like, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the pancreas, um, potentially the small bowel or intestine. Um, those are the main organs um, that, that I, I consider kind of functional solid organs. Then things like bones, skin, eyes can be taken for kind of tissue transplant. There's actually a second type of donor, which we call DCD, or donation after circulatory death. These are patients that aren't brain dead. And their doctors and families have decided to withdraw support. In that case, all the support, the breathing tubes are removed. And if their heart stops beating quickly, then we can again take out their organs. But in those cases, we don't use the heart typically. Right. That process is too hard on the heart. And, and you were talking, yeah. you said you wanted to cover in the book some of the heroes and the people that, that do make these uh, life-changing choices to be donors. Uh, obviously, um, it's important for people to make that decision. I know I've got it on my uh, driver's license to be an, a, a donor. And, and if my body can in any way help others after my passing, I think that's a fantastic way to go. Uh, but what, what did you share? What are some of the, the tales that you tell in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, so I kind of look at the book as it's broken into three parts. One part is sort of part memoir and sort of my own coming of age as a surgeon I, I could say in the beginning I'm too young to write a memoir, although I don't feel that way really. Right. But, um, so one part, one part is that. And I really want to be honest with people about what it's like to be a surgeon, what it's like in and out of the OR to make these decisions, to make errors, to make, you know, so many things go right, but some things go wrong. And then it's one part history where I really go through this sort of modern history of transplant and I was able to fly around and, and meet with some of those pioneers because many are still alive and kind of understand how were they able to do what they did when they had so many patients dying on their operating table and people around them calling them crazy and murderers and this kind of thing. 
And then the third part is really um, patient stories. So I do uh, both recipient stories, which I think are some of the most powerful parts of the book, and then also donor family stories, living donor and deceased donors, and really kind of talk about the heroes that these people are um, to me. Um, I think they're kind of what makes transplant so special. Um, but the historical stories are really amazing. These pioneers, what, I mean, what incredible innovation over a short period of time and sort of uh, something we should all be proud of, I think, when you think about that we were able to solve that puzzle. Um, gives me a lot of hope for, the, for future innovations as well. How how hard is it for recuperation after a transplant, and is it a lifelong issue? I mean, you know, we'd like to think that it's just a plug-and-play model, but are you on medication? Are you under right. a different total regime of living? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I would definitely wouldn't call it a plug-and-play, but I, I, you know, when you get a transplant, it really is. A lot of people look at it as their new birthday, and in a, in a lot of ways, you, it is a new life. You do have to take care of the organs. There are lots of medications. Uh, one has to take to prevent rejection. But that said, the dramatic rapid improvement of people that are suffering from organ failure, I think maybe one of the most dramatic might be, at least that I'm, I'm involved with, is like a liver transplant where people can be so close to death in a coma on a breathing tube and you put a new liver in and like one day later they're completely awake and look amazing. They're still in the hospital for a while and a lot of it depends how sick they were going in. I think it's similar with something like a heart where people, are, you know, maybe are hooked up to tubes, they can barely breathe, and they get this new organ, and it's like night and day how much better they look. You know, a kidney, uh, if you take someone who's on dialysis, which so many patients will say, it keeps me alive, but it's not really a way to live. Right. And then you give them a kidney, and their color, like, returns so quickly. It's really uh, pretty amazing. Now, they end up staying in the hospital for a few weeks, and... You know, there can obviously be complications, but the, but the vast majority of patients really get a lot of improvement pretty quickly. Do the, uh, you know, when you're, you're looking for this, what kind of detail and work has to go into understanding the donor, aside from just, well, this could be a physical possible match? Do you have to look at, uh, is there cancer in the donor's family? Has there been any issues with this kind of um, uh, organ that's being donated before in family so that, you know, you're not just transplanting a kidney or a liver or a heart or something or lung that may be prone to, you know, cancer or other diseases because of the genetic uh, issues of, of the uh, host to begin with? Yeah, I mean, that's an important uh, a comment or question. So anytime we do a transplant, the recipient would be at risk for any cancers that that donor could have had or, or other infections. So when we have a deceased donor, you know, we have a fairly limited amount of time to kind of work things up. Um, our coordinators will take uh, the best family histories they can from talking to the next of kin and, um, you know, then we'll go through whatever medical records we can find. Um, We'll sometimes do different scan CT scans or other testing uh, on the donor if they're older. And then when we go to take the organs, we do a kind of a full exploration uh, of their abdomen and um, of their chest to make sure there aren't any tumors or other findings that we need to be concerned about. Um, so, you know, we do our best, and we're really good at that, but there certainly have been some cases where, uh, uh, cancers have been transmitted. It's not common, but it can happen. There even was a kind of wild story a few years back of uh, of actually some rabies being transmitted uh, through oh, organs. And, uh, then we found out found out afterwards the donor had actually been bitten by a bat, but it wasn't information that uh, the family had known uh, when they were interviewed. That's quite quite rare. Right. With with living donors. Uh, you know, we have more time to do the workup, and we kind of really can assess uh, their history, their background. We can biopsy things if we need to, so we can, you know, it allows us to do a little bit of a more thorough workup. I mean, patients do well, but it's never zero risk, and we're always right. very clear with the recipients about these types of risks. So. Do, do most of these transplants take the first time, or do you, you know, if, if you had a heart, lung, or, or kidney, liver transplant, things like that, do they sometimes require to be replaced again 10,000 miles or, you know, five years down the road? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in general, the organs do really well, especially when you think about 
It was only since 1983 when cyclosporin was approved that, that the outcomes started to get really good. But like with, uh, say, a living donor kidney transplant, the one-year survival is better than 97%, which is really good. Um, and deceased donor kidney is around 95%. Um, you look at an organ like the liver, the one-year survival is something like nine, 90%. And for heart, it's up in the mid-90s. So these organs do really well. We have pretty good testing uh, pre-transplant to figure out kind of how primed your immune system might be towards that donor. So it's, it's extremely rare to put an organ in and have it fail immediately. Um, so it's, it's actually pretty well worked out. Now, long term, they can ultimately fail. Uh, you know, transplants don't usually last forever. And I think a, a patient that gets, you know, 15, 20 years out of a transplant has done really well. We have some people that go longer, but, of course, we have some people that, that lose their organs earlier. Um, but we've seen so much improvement uh, from the early days. Um, and I think things are continuing to get better. Patients do still have to take medications throughout to prevent rejection. And, um, you know, we're working hard on trying to reduce that. But for now, that's the case. Do most recipients get the chance to meet the donor or donor family? I mean, we, we try to, uh, to set that up if both sides are willing. So usually after a transplant, uh, we'll tell... Uh, the recipients to recover, and then if they want to write a letter to the donor in a, in a month or two, they give us that letter, and then our, our organ procurement organization will contact the donor and see if they want to receive, the donor family, I should say, and see if they want to receive that letter. More often than not, they do, but sometimes one side or another doesn't want to do that. But I'm always really happy when they do, because I think both sides gain so much. The donor right. family will often feel like you know they're gaining a family member and their their loved one is living on and and the recipient fit, you know usually wants to learn about the person that really saved their life um so that's one of the best parts about it we've only got a few seconds left here together do you have any idea how many people yeah. are are um donors that are willing to make donations after their death i don't know the answer to that i mean i know there are something there more than 100,000 people waiting for organs, and we do something like 30,000 transplants a year in this country. Um, but the number of people that are listed, I don't know the answer not, to that. Unfortunately, not enough. So that signed up. Consider that, folks. Uh, yeah. Joshua Mesrich, the book is called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. Thank you so much for the work you do, Joshua. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you very much for tuning in. Tom will be back with you tomorrow here on the Tom Bernard Show.